This is gonna hurt. It's time, it's time for the Suffering, for the suffering Podcast. Podcast. Pressure can crush the hardest substances on earth, but pressure can also make diamonds. The difference comes in how you react to this inevitable and unforgiving force. Our reactions speak volumes and tell us who steps up and who steps out. If you look at pressure under a different microscope, you'll see opportunity. The adversity under stress allows someone to rise above and show true talent. This ability allows certain people to stand out amongst the crowd. Pressure often comes from unknown situations. Training can reduce, if not eradicate, pressure and turn it into something normal and familiar. Pressure is inevitable. Your reaction is up to you. I'm Kevin Donaldson, here with Mike Felace, and welcome to The Suffering Podcast. If you're a fan of overcoming adversity and overcoming suffering, then we're for you, because that's what we do here, and that's the stories we highlight. So do me a favor. Hit that like button. Subscribe to the channel. Please comment. Now you can join. Ring the bell so you can get notified of all of our new content and follow us on all social media so you can find out what we're up to. Tonight's a very special episode because it's somebody I've been trying to get in here for months and months, but he's a busy guy. We had to pull a lot of strings to get him here. And I've had a lot of anxiety about pronouncing <clears throat> his name because it ends in a vowel. <laughs> it's Dr. Maurizio Miglietta. You got it. I did awesome. Look at that. I did. Yeah. First shot. I, I practiced a lot. So <laughs> that's what I said. I said, he, I said, he practiced all day and I hope he practiced wrong. <laughs> that would have been great. <laughs> Before we start anything, let's give a big shout out to our marquee sponsor. That's Toyota of Hackensack. We don't trust anybody, but we do trust them. So if you're looking for a car, go to toyotahackensack.com and let them find you a car. So doc, each week we take a question from our audience. This one comes from Synergy 59853. Now, we've all worked on people at the end of their life, and he wants to know, or she, how heavy is the burden that you feel when you lose somebody that you're working on? You're our guest tonight. I want to lead this one off with you. I would say if you don't own it, you shouldn't be doing it. Own it. Just give our audience a little so, idea, idea of how you own it. When, I, when, I, when that patient comes in and their life is in my hands, I own them. You know, It's mm-hmm. up to me. There's nobody else. And You're the last line of defense. Right. Yeah, exactly. And if I don't do my job it's not going to be a good day for you or your family or so, for you. Yeah. Or for me. Or for exactly. Yeah. And the point is I own it. And, uh, I always look at things after the fact, what could I have done better? What could I have done differently? And when things don't go well, um, I beat myself up. I don't sleep at night. Um, it, I relive it over the next couple of days. So it doesn't happen again. That's what I mean by I own it. Well, does it ever chip away at your your humanity? It doesn't sound like it does. If you're if you're staying awake uh, at night after you lose somebody, over time you you become callous to that. Yeah, I, I mean to do the kind of job that first responders do, that doctors do, um, you have to be a little. There has to be a little bit of a wall up, or else you wouldn't be able to do it. You know, we've seen the worst of the worst. Um, we've seen people at their worst. Yeah. But here's the difference between us and someone like you. We work on them to get them to you. But once they're in your hands, yeah. we're, we can breathe. We're, oh, okay, now, now it's in the professional's hands. And now the pressure is transferred to you exponentially. Yeah. When you're the last line, there's nobody else. Yeah, there's nobody else. There's yeah, nobody we, else. we could, like, if we go on a CPR call or something like that, when the EMTs get there. There's people behind us. Yeah. When the EMTs get there, when the paramedics get there, there's people behind the EMTs. Well, it's that higher medical authority, and there is none higher than you. Uh, obviously, we're here to talk about the suffering of a trauma surgeon, and you're the last line. Mike, what do you think? 
You know, I mean, it, it's heavy and it sticks with you all day. I mean, like I said, to me, the, some of the worst things were the CPR calls. Yeah. You know, we, we had a guy, he, he vapor locked on his bed and pulled him off the bed. We're doing CPR on the floor. And I look up and his little daughter is sitting right behind it, laying on the bed like this. She goes, is my daddy going to live? I'm like, you know, you know what, actually, what? I think that's one of the toughest parts. It's not that person when they're having the worst day of their life, oftentimes they're it's their body's way of dealing it. They're kind of not aware of what's going on, but I find that it's the family members the that are crying over the loved yeah. ones that are screaming. You can hear them in the waiting room crying. I find that harder to deal with than that direct person sometimes. So it's a I weird. had a guy who I knew I was doing CPR on him and I know his son went to Notre Dame and this guy was a big Notre Dame. So as I'm doing CPR on him, they tell you, you know, talk to them, do what you got to do, you yeah. know, cause they could still hear started singing a Notre Dame fight song to him just to try to give him some hope. Yeah. But you try everything you can in order to save these people. I had an incident and I, not that it's stuck in my high, mind or all anything, but it was July 14th, 2004. Oh, that didn't stick in your it mind. Didn't stick much. in my mind at <laughs> all. Um, somebody had shot through the window of our quick check that was closing at 11. They, they were right there and closing. They were robbing the place. And the guy gave him over the money. This guy, Eduardo, who we all knew because we were in there for coffee all the time. And as soon as he they raised the gun, he turned around to run away and they shot him in the back. So when we got there, it was almost, you know, he probably wasn't down for two or three minutes. He's still alive. White as a ghost, eyes, black basketballs. And I remember him, we, we get him on a stretcher. And I remember him looking at me and going, don't let me die. That's what all he says. Yeah. Don't let me die. And I said, you know, you, you, you try to be compassionate. You said, listen, we're doing everything we can. Just sit tight, relax. We got you. And we don't got him. Like, yeah. it, was, it was a, I told him a lie. And I, I live with that every single day. I mean, it's almost 20 years ago. But I live with it every single day that I told him, we got you. And we don't. So you want to hear something interesting about that don't let me die phenomenon. So as a trauma surgeon, you get people all the time, shot, stabbed, car accidents, whatever it is. Doc, don't let me die. Don't let me die. So. I, over the years, I heard this in so many different scenarios that I decided to do a study about it. So in 2009, I published this study in the American Surgeon where I surveyed hundreds of trauma surgeons around the United States about premonition of death. Like if you think you're going to die, are you going to die? Or if you say, that's the cop who gets shot in the finger versus the one that gets shot in the head that lives. Right, right. Right, Or if if you say I'm going to die, am I going to die really? So Basically, in my results, over half of trauma surgeons believe that if a patient feels like they're going to have a premonition that something bad's going to happen, that oftentimes it does. So we know that patients' uh, mental status can affect their physiological status. So if you have the willpower to survive, certain things get released in your body that may allow you to survive. So. Most doctors felt that it you couldn't make yourself survive, but they felt that if you had a negative aspect, you were more likely to die. Well, I'm sure the, the positive has a higher percentage of living. So the people yeah. that say, Doc, I got, I got three kids. Please don't let me die. I'm not going to die. They don't die. But the guy who looks at you in the eye and says, Doc, I'm dying. That guy dies. Wow. You, you know what else is weird, too? You know, when you're doing CPR on someone, their eyes are open and it's like, they're looking at you. It looks like they want to say something yeah. to you. You know, it's like, 
Yeah, it's it's never end of life is not a John Wayne movie. No, there's no, no. there's no fancy last words. It's the worst moment of their life, and it's some. If you weren't human, it would it wouldn't. Tra- I would say if it didn't transfer onto you, then you're not human. Yeah. So synergy. Thank you so much for sending that question in. Keep sending in your questions, and we will try to get them on the air. They won't always be that heavy. Sometimes we get a fun question yeah. once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> so, Doc, we made contact through our good friend, Mark Henger, uh, who's been working with you for a very, very long time, who yeah. is, has his upcoming nuptials coming, and um, hopefully I think all three of us are going to be there. And yep. It's going to be a good time. But I have heard so much about you as um, – you know, when I go to church, you hear about Jesus and you hear about God all the time. <laughs> and then there's Dr. Miggs. And I've heard about the same amount from Mark from you. So you've left an indelible mark on his brain of some of the things that you, you've you done. I even know how you met. That's how much I wow. remember it. It was a car accident and some guy comes walking up behind him and he says, hey, you need some help? And, and you know, is when, when first responders are like, oh, no, we got it. We got it. Well, I'm a trauma surgeon. Well, hey, go, go right ahead. Go right ahead. Have at it, Doc. <laughs> yeah. So I'm grateful that you're here. I'm very, very grateful. For, and I know your schedule is really, really tight. I know you spent all day in the OR. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> and he's got another one tonight. Right after this. Oh, my. You, you got another? Yeah. Okay. Well, we better hurry up. So somebody, <laughs> no worries. Somebody well, doesn't check out. So that. That's it for this episode of the Yeah, <laughs> Thanks for coming in. So why don't you give our audience a little bit about yourself? I always tell people my life started with trauma. So even as a child, I was in a major plane crash at Kennedy Airport coming back from Italy. Every summer I used to go to Italy from like June to September. And September 15th, 1970, uh, we were coming back from Italy and the plane hit the runway, split in half, engines fell off. Uh, I, I have the picture. I'll show it to you. It's like 90 degrees off the side of the runway. Um, bad plane crash. I broke my collarbone. Uh, I've been in explosion. I've been run over by a car three times. You um, made a Kevlar? <laughs> yeah, no my last day as a medic, I used to be a medic before I was a doctor. Uh, my last day in EMS was we were T-boned, flipped over, broke my shoulder, my hand in three places, went through the roof of the ambulance. So I've had some pretty bad stuff happen to me over Your the years. real name's not Steve Rogers, is it? <laughs> so I figure I got like one or two more lives left out of my nine lives. I think it's more like Clark Kent. <laughs> the plane crash alone. So Mike and I were on a, on a flight flying into oh. Philly in January of 2022, and it was during a snowstorm. Mm-hmm. I have never been so scared in my life because we're coming in at 25 mile an hour wind shear just like this, and I'm looking at the runway, and it's white. I go, what the hell is about to happen? And we hit, and you can feel us sliding. I don't know about you. I don't like flying. It's that loss of control. You know, I I always say, me as a surgeon, I'm taking care of one person. You know, sometimes you get multiple uh, casualties at the same time. But my hands, uh, people are in one-to-one relationship. These pilots have 200, 300 people in their hands every single day, and we take it for granted. Yeah. It's it's really crazy when you think about it. Safest way to fly, but the... the <laughs> I mean, statistically, it's really, really safe, but still, yeah. that lack of control bothers a person like me. 99.9% of other transportation accidents you don't hear anything about, but one plane one goes plane down, yeah. you hear everything about it. So I the happen to be one of those people that survive one. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. Now, when you, after you had that plane crash, like it had to lead you down some sort of some sort of path like i'm kind of meant for something a little bit better a little bit more yeah you don't know whether a career chooses the individual or the individual chooses a career uh but i always felt like i always 
wanted or felt like I deserved to be in that emergency trauma atmosphere. It just came naturally to me. I'm not a big thinker. I'm more of a reactor and I usually react to things in the right way in that hospital setting. So, um, it worked well for me as a medic and then it worked well for me as a trauma surgeon. Well, I have noticed this throughout my life that there are two types of people. There's those people who study and they're the academic, you yeah. know, and then there's the other people who are the doers. Right. And you can break it down into every single aspect of life. Like even in police work, there's administrators in the street yeah, cops. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. So, um, and, <laughs> and there's going to be people who run towards the danger and there's going to be people yeah, who run away. Right. Yeah. Unfortunately, in every profession, there's one of each usually. Uh, so where did you grow up? So I grew up in Hudson County, North Bergen, New Jersey. Uh-oh. Okay. And, is- and a funny story is across the street. Where's from your accent? House- uh, Jersey, come on. No, no, you don't have that Hudson <laughs> County that accent. Hudson County accent. We know way too many people from Hudson <laughs> yeah. County. I guess I, I've been around a little bit. But so across the street from my house, there was a guy who used to give me a quarter to go down to Tiny's, which was a liquor store down in North Bergen, with 25 cents to buy him Schweppes ginger ale every day. So I used to go to him and I used to give it to him and he used to start like throwing punches with me and I didn't think much of it. Years would go by. I We had a good relationship like this and I found out that it's, um, Cinderella man. Uh, he was my next Bulldog door neighbor. Bulldog of Bergen, Jimmy Braddock. Jimmy Braddock wow. was my next door neighbor, lived directly across from me. And he used to throw punches with me at a kid and I had no idea who he was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I had a friend of mine that worked with him cause he was an operating engineer later mm-hmm. in his life. And, um, said he was real quiet. Yeah. He, they used to give him the cake jobs because he was Jimmy Braddock. Yeah. yeah. Okay. He, he used to get to work the elevator going up and down when they were building Veranzano. But yeah, so you can, you're, you've actually gotten punched by a professional fighter, I have. a heavyweight champ of the world. <laughs> That's check. Yep. And trauma cert, check. Yeah. Um, you got punched by one too. So as you mature. Jerry, Jerry Cooney punched her in the ribs. Yeah. Jerry Cooney did punch me in the ribs. That Seriously? is true. But he was never champion. Yeah. yeah he, t- he thought it was funny, man. He shook, he's a lefty. He shook my hand and he came in with the left of my ribs. I'm like, you do it oh, again, geez. old man. I'm going to break your hip. I mean, it hurt. Yeah. I remember what. Ribs hurt. Waking up the next day, going, damn man, yeah. that was that was rough. So you grew up in you grew up getting punched by uh, Jimmy Braddock. Yeah. But how did this like? You, what was your career path like? So I always knew I was going to go into medicine. My dad was a doctor. How a great role model. Uh, me and my brother both became doctors, and um, I knew I was too young to become a doctor, so I decided to become an EMT and a medic. So when I was back then, you could do it when you were fifteen years old. So when I was fifteen, I went to night school, became an EMT. Started writing for West New York, New Jersey, um, that EMS squad. Um, loved it. And then, you know, went to medical school and went through the whole thing and, and did my fellowship at the number one place in the world for trauma. Which, what, what was the draw to to this field of medicine, like this medical, like even with an EMT? What was the draw? Because people will often have high hopes of doing this stuff. Hey, listen, yeah. every, every parent wants their kid to be a doctor or something of that nature, a lawyer. But then when you get in it, you feel like, you're like, oh, man, I don't think this is for me. What was your draw once you became an EMT? It never felt wrong. I just felt like I always was in the right place and where I wanted to be. And I always tell people, even today, when I go to I never have a problem getting out of bed and going to work, ever. Well, well they say that if you, lo- if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. I, I couldn't yeah. agree with that more. I, yeah. I love doing what I do every day. I love taking care of patients. I love operating. So you start going up and you find your specialty. You go, where'd you go to college? I went to Rutgers. Okay. Rutgers in Jersey. And then uh, I went to University of Maryland for my fellowship in trauma and critical care. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Went went from a a knight to a terp. 
Well, you know how I know they're the Terps is because my brother used to go to Western Maryland. Okay. And we went down there and we went to the University of Maryland for a party or something. And I stole a pair of lacrosse shorts. And it had the little, <laughs> it had a little logo <laughs> yeah. for the Terps on it. It's actually, um, it's actually a Terrapin. Yeah. A turtle, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's what it is. The path to being a doctor is so long and it takes up so much of your life. We just had a, a woman in here. She was FDMY paramedic mm -hmm. and she always wanted to be a doctor, but somebody had gotten a hold of her and say, said, cause she wanted to have a family and somebody had gotten a hold of her and said, you know, don't be so quick to give up your life to be a doctor. There's other avenues of, of, of medical, of the medical field. Was that ever a, a, something in your mind? There yeah. was just no doubt. I mean, there's a hell of a lot of sacrifice. Yeah. I mean, you're studying your ass off college after that to get into medical school, then to stay into medical school. And then after that, and then there's no holidays as a doctor, yeah. you know, you got to work Christmas, you got to work New Year's. Especially um, early in your career. Yeah. And, and my kids had a lot of like, I was supposed to be with my kids last night. I was in the operating room till midnight, you know, that kind of stuff. They're home from college and I'm still operating. So there's a lot of personal sacrifice. There's a lot of financial sacrifice. Medical school is expensive. But and then as a resident, you're not making, as a resident, making, you're not making crap. I make $30,000 as a resident working a hundred plus hours a week. You know? And sure you're a doctor, yeah. but you're not making doctor money yet. No. And, um, I know. And, and you have, you're drowning in debt. Yeah. So during your residency, yeah. do you have to start paying back your medical? Uh, you can be deferred. But, you know, all your friends you went to college with who went into business school are making a couple hundred grand, you know, during that time while you're making 30 grand a year. Yeah, for many but years. now I'm but sure. But again, you know, I'm, never, a, I'm a doctor. Yeah. Yeah. But never had any regrets. Never <clears throat> looked back. Um, I, again, I love what I do. But I, get, I get, guarantee you didn't start this field for the money. No, no, and you can't. You Because if you're in it for just the money, you... you you're just, you're doing, you're yeah. in it for the wrong reason. I mean, now doctors live, a, they used to live a really good life. Now you live a good life. It's not as lucrative as it was, uh, you know, 10, 20 years ago. Insurance companies aren't paying as much they as they screwed, used to. They screwed us royally. Yeah. yeah. Which that's the one thing you don't want to skimp on. No. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, you can skimp on a lot of things in this world, but medical care, I don't know about that. Yeah, and the new doctors going into medicine, you know, want nine to five jobs. They don't want to be on call. They don't want to be on weekends. It's a whole different lifestyle now. Um, I'm like kind of a dinosaur in terms of being a surgeon. Well, general practitioners could be nine to five. Uh, right? You'd be surprised. Some surgeons are nine to five. Not are they really? Yeah. yeah, but that's how they do it. So a general practitioner, even even a specialty, they're, they're always associated with the hospital. Like my urologist. I know he's always getting called out to, to Marstown and to do some sort of surgery. So... I don't know what that does. Like, I don't understand the whole physician field. It's, it's something that's very foreign to me. So it used to be that we were all in what private practice. We hung our own shingle. We had our own staff or we paid our own bills. And then what happened is the insurance companies over the last 10, 20 years forced everybody to be employed by hospital networks and hospital systems. And you lose control of everything. And they did that so that, the insurance companies can make deals with the hospitals to pay you a certain amount to control costs and stuff like that. And that ruined medicine, unfortunately. Yet they're still charging a lot for, for supplies. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, they don't have a problem with that. I looked at the bill from, I was in the hospital a couple of years ago for one night and I'm looking at the, the system's completely broken. Wow. We yeah. could talk about this for 10 hours and we're never going to fix it. It's, it's a, it's a bad system. Do you think it's just a run by greed? Uh, it's, it's run by, or, or it's corners. run as a business rather than something we should be doing for society. 
I think that's the problem. That's, that's an interesting. Con- that's an interesting take on it. It's run as a business, yeah. and not everything in this world. Of bu- you know, the business of police work. We've heard this before. It's not a business. No, no. It's a, it's a it's a calling. It's something you do because you love it. And, and it's there, a lifestyle. There's benefits to it, of course. Now you you've worked through your residency, and, and there's many different specialties out there. Did, was trauma something that you always worked towards? Yeah, I, I always wanted to be a. I, I I struggled between emergency medicine and trauma because they attract the same type of personalities where you want immediate gratification. You see something, you fix it, as opposed to you know medical doctors have to think about it and see what happens over a couple of weeks. We want to take care of it right away. So there's uh, no take these and call me in the morning. No, yeah. no. Yeah. Take yeah. two and call me in the morning. Yeah. Exactly. Now, now, did being in EMT and a medic bring you into that the trauma field? Like all the yeah, like I, I accidents it, you saw? And- I knew I was going to eventually go into that, and I, I was itching, so that's what I did in the meantime. Uh, but I think it made me a better doctor seeing the EMS side of it and the pre-hospital side and what you guys go through uh, on the field. That, that helped me a lot. Because a lot of doctors never see that. But there's also an adrenaline rush to it. Now, I know yeah. certain things that I've been told by your your friend who's sitting in our booth out there. Yeah. You have some adrenaline rush things going on. Is that is that sort of the, the draw to trauma? I think it attracts the same type of personality. It's like you said, they, they run into the fire rather yeah. than run away from it. And, uh, you know, that's why um, since about... 2003, 2004, I've always been involved in the law enforcement aspect of, of trauma and critical care and stuff like that. So I, I kind of do both things. So I know you're, you're tied into the law enforcement community, which is kind of one of the, one of our connections here. You do a lot of things for law enforcement. What is so attractive about the law enforcement side of, of your field? I like to help people who are helping the world, helping society. You guys are keeping us safe. You know, I'm, my kids are sleeping tight because you guys are out in the street. So that's how it started off. It was my way to pay back uh, to law enforcement. And then as I became more involved, uh, I saw the rush as well. And I, I saw the uh, satisfaction of it. And that's why I, I eventually became a, a sworn uh, law enforcement officer. Yeah, I was going to well. say, you're, you're involved in law enforcement yourself, yeah. aside from being a trauma surgeon. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> one wasn't enough adrenaline for you, yeah. so you had yeah, to go exactly. for some more, right? Yeah, it's a strange phenomena of seeing a gunshot wound victim and then three days later arresting the perp. I don't think that happens much um, with most people in this country. No, that's a whole different, yeah. that's that you're, you're covering the gambit. Cause you know, as, as police, we go out there and we're at the scene, we're doing the things, but then the detectives come in there. Yeah. So if you're working, you know, they got some of those one horse towns where a guy will do everything soup to nuts. Yeah. That usually doesn't happen in law enforcement, nor does it happen in, in your field, but your capacity as a law enforcement officer, is it because of your medicine background? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find out what your connection is, or is that just something you just wanted to do? I think it was a parallel road that has some interconnections and I chose to cross back and forth from each of them. And what's what's that done as far as, has it made you a better doctor to to work in that field? Yeah. I think a couple of things have made me a better doctor. I think working with people who are selfless is a big deal for me. And I think anybody in law enforcement is is selfless. Anybody who served our country is selfless. Any good cop is selfless. Yeah. Well, there's three reasons why you do anything. Mission, message, and money. Right. And if you're doing it for the money, I'm sorry to say it's for the wrong reasons. Yeah. Uh, but that mission and that message, I mean, that's, listen, that's, that's why we, that's why we do a show. Cause we have those things, but I'm sure it's, 
you've had some wins and you've had some losses. Um, you've probably seen some of the worst trauma that you could possibly imagine. What, if you could pick out one, I know there's always one that yeah. stands out. Yeah. What would it, what would it be? So I won't get too graphic with some of the things, but one of the stories that sticks in my mind was when I was in, uh, in the South Bronx and, uh, they brought in this, a uh, couple of month old baby, uh, that was backboard and collared, not crying, just sitting there staring at the ceiling and its head was three, four times the diameter it should have been. And, uh, ultimately learned that, uh, his dad has gra- grabbed him by the legs and was banging him against the wall so hard that his skull fractured and he had big bleed in his brain. But he knew that if he cried, he would get beat up more. Get, get hit again, yeah. That's, that's sad. So he was sitting there in the backboard and collar. Nurses are crying, looking at this little kid. Um, just horrible, horrible night. And we take x-rays of the kid, and um, he's had healed fractures. And he's only a couple of months old. So this has been going on from the minute he was born, but he knew not to cry. And the most beautiful part of that night was I was the trauma on that night. Um, we got his dad as the next trauma after that. Hmm. Some justice was Gun, done. There. Gunshot wound. <laughs> Some justice was done. NYPD did, NYPD did a good thing yeah. that night. Yeah. Getting hit with a phone book wasn't always a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, there's cause they know the courts, the courts are, so here's the sad part about that. Yeah. If he goes to some, say he gets locked up for child abuse, but then he shows good faith and goes through programs, he'll get that kid back when yeah. he should have never been a father in the beginning. Yeah, exactly. Right. You know, there, there's people in this world who try and try and try and they'd be great parents. I, I have many friends who can have kids and they'd be wonderful parents. Right. Um, and then there's some people who don't even try. They have kids. They don't even want them. And they do things like that to them. That's the sad part of this world. Yeah, and um, there, there's certainly evil out there. No, and that that was one of the tough things in law enforcement too. You had to, if there was any kind of child abuse, you had to treat the abuser, yeah, like a gentle, you know, treat them like a real person in order to get them to talk and to oh, mess yeah. up. And you, and you're sitting across the table, you just want to reach across and grab them by the throat. <laughs> when when you're transporting them, though, that's what they make waffle jobs. Yeah, for. exactly. But you know what? That that really bothers me as like a doctor as well. So as as a law enforcement officer, I arrest pedophiles there's quite a bit in our task i don't know how i don't know how you control yourself around that but the the point the thing that kills me as a doctor is that's normal to them just like we love women and we are attracted to women and it's completely yeah yeah i I heard some things yeah Yeah, i mean yeah (laughs) so we love a certain gender let's be politically correct we love a certain gender and that's perfectly normal in their mind that's perfectly normal um they that's what they crave that's what it feels normal to them. That's what satisfies them. And that's the disturbing part. So we, we were talking about waffle jobs. I don't know if you know what waffle job is. I'm not familiar. Okay. So we, there used to be cages in, in the cars. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And if somebody's being combative, you don't have time to, you're not going to reach in there and seatbelt them. So, so you just hit the gas and, and then stop and boom. And you, <laughs> and you shut them up. Real waffle quick. Face, right? This was the days before cameras and cars and I stuff like that. It was a good time. Yeah. You know, the you, little you street. You couldn't justice. stop the car. You, you, you can't hit a guy that's in handcuffs, right? So you couldn't get out and do anything like that. So you give him a waffle job. Yeah. <laughs> no, and, and, but there were, but you could make his thumbs touch the back of his head in handcuffs. And that was, that, oh, yeah. you yeah, can have a camera good. right on. But that's, a, it's street justice. You, you know, you try not to be the judge, jury, and executioner all in one. But there are certain times where you're biting your lip. You're like, you son of a yeah. bitch. 
Like, what did you do? And and we're helpless at that point. We yeah. got no power. Just like if that person who who did that to that kid, the trauma kid, you have to treat them. Like you yeah. you have the Hippocratic Oath. Oh, you yeah. have to. And you had to give this that day. You had to give the same care to that kid as his father who came in. You had, That's nuts. Isn't yeah. It? yeah. Yeah. You can't just sit back and say, I think we'll make it. Yeah. Give me, again, take two of these and I'll see you in the morning. <laughs> exactly. But, that's, but then you had some wins still. A lot of you, wins. You have lots of wins. I mean, you've been doing this. I've read your, your resume and you've been doing this for so long and you've done such great things. People don't rise to your level without doing some incredibly great things where obviously I don't even want to hear any more stories like that little kid, but tell us about your greatest win. No, first of all, that, that child, did he make it? Yeah, he actually did. Yeah. Okay. All right. And hopefully he got into a better household after that. Yeah. Did, uh, the, did the father make it? <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> um, so when, uh, so I'll tell you a situation where I was uh, in the hospital and I heard a code being called overhead and it was like a certain color that you don't normally hear. Like, you know, code red is like a, you know, a CPR. And uh, so I heard a certain code and I didn't know what it was. And I'm just sitting up there and I didn't have to respond to it. And then I heard it again a second time. So I'm just go down the ER and see what it is. And I turned the corner and there's a, a pregnant lady that they're doing CPR on. And um, they, uh, I, I was like, she looked very pregnant. And I was like, why didn't you guys deliver the baby? And they're like, oh, two doctors, OBGYN doctors came, put an ultrasound on the, the fetus, and there was no heartbeat. And they walked away and left uh, wow. because there was no fetal heartbeat. And the mom was undergoing CPR. So they couldn't get an airway on her. So I criked her. I did a trach at the bedside. I grab a scalpel and I cut up, cut up the mom. I literally in the ER just with the scalpel cut open, delivered the baby and the baby was blue, did a couple of chest compressions and the baby woke up. Meanwhile, everybody had already left and said the baby's dead and dismissed it Two attendings. I was a resident at the time. So, Basically, I I didn't know that they had already been there at the time and said that she was dead, that the baby was dead. I would have been fired had I done that today yeah. or anything else, because that's basically, um, you know, assault on a on a dead body. Um, but that baby ended up surviving, and the dad was very thankful. But people had walked away from that woman and that that baby saying that they were dead just because there was no fetal heart rate. And you know that fetuses can withstand a lack of oxygen very well because they have a different type of hemoglobin. That's why kids, when they fall in the lake, can survive for extended period of time without oxygen. And that's why I did it. That's that's a great, like, (laughs) it's a tragedy, but out of tragedy, you know, there's beauty that comes out of ashes every once in a while. Right. But that seems to be, you know... I'm sure that's not the only one, but that right there gives people hope that just one more compression, just one more push, just one more shot. You never give up. So I always hope is one of my biggest things as a trauma surgeon. So um, are you guys familiar with the hope uh, experiments, the rat experiment? No. Oh, uh, with the with the water? Yes, yeah. I do know this. So this is an amazing study. So in the 1950s, you couldn't do the study today. The animal activists wouldn't allow this study. So in the 1950s, a, a doctor named Kurt Richter, a Harvard doctor, so when he would t- uh, this is the one where he would take them out. Water, he would take them out occasionally, and he put rats in this jar of water to see how long they could tread water. 
And after 15 minutes, almost all the rats would drown. So that was his benchmark, 15 minutes. So the real part of the experiment was right before 15 minutes after that, he would pluck them out. These were domesticated rats. He would pluck them out of the water, dry them off, give them a little rest, and then throw them back in the water. So the question is, how long did the rats survive on the second attempt? Did they survive the same 15 minutes? Did they survive 10 minutes? Did they survive five minutes? How long do you think? Take a guess. It was two hours. You'd say two hours. I, I would probably say about 45 minutes. 45 minutes. Well, yeah. Guess what the answer is. Uh, maybe 24. 60 hours. Wow. wow. That's the power That's of crazy. hope. Well, right? that goes back to what we were saying in the beginning yeah. with the social media question. It's, it's, the la- it's the loss of hope. Yeah. Hope is an incredible thing to have in life. It's, so basically... The message is, is that we all have to have a reason to keep on swimming, right? Yeah, without doubt. Right? Human beings have to have that hope. And it's like a, it's like a primitive instinct that we have as humans that if we have that sliver of hope, whatever that minute chance is, we're going to keep on fighting. So somebody told me hope stands for hold on, pain ends. Hold on, pain ends. And that's what it is. It's just, you know, yeah. there, there, I saw I saw a picture the other day of a guy digging for diamonds. Like mm-hmm. these two guys, one on top of each other, they're digging for diamonds. One guy is within a sliver of hitting the big diamond cache, mm-hmm. and he walks. He's walking away. Where the other guy just keeps going, and that's the guy that finds the diamonds. And it's just one more time. But that <laughs> that one more time has driven a lot of people insane. That one more time has killed a lot of people. Yeah. Because they just, they, they don't want to give up. But I would, I would venture to say that there are times, has there ever been a time where you've felt like, yeah, I, I can't do this? Uh, where you lost hope. I, I've, I've had a lot of personal things happen in my life, tragedies. I've had a lot of political, um, hospital-related politics things, people stabbing you in the back, you know, everyone goes through it in their life. Uh, but I've never had the point where, I, did, I didn't want to be a doctor. I didn't want to be a surgeon. I didn't want to do what I do every day. It's the other shit that, that, that really messes things up. You know, the politics, the insurance companies, all that. So it's the clowns, not the circus. Yeah, you know? exactly. You, you, you know, when you finally retire, and hopefully you never do because it sounds like you're, you're doing a fantastic job. I still have job. some juice in me. Yeah. yeah. When you shuffle off, you know, you're going to miss the clowns, not the circus, because that's what we say about yeah. police work. I don't miss... The craziness of the administrative bullshit. You missed the guys. I missed miss the guys. guys without yeah. Yeah. Some of them. Not all of them. Some of them. Some of the guys I wouldn't give two cents for. Yeah. But yeah. That's just there's my- a, There's always those. That's things. just my jaded- I saw I saw a couple of them the other day, and they're like, hey, uh, you used to work with them. Why don't you go over and say hi? I said, no, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> they see me too. They want to come over and say hi to me. They can come yeah. over to me. So you've reached some- Political heights, too. You've been director of some, I mean, I know you do star, you do some, I, I don't know how you get those, those, uh, those positions. It has to, is it on performance based or is it just your um, knowledge or your you know. personality? It's not who you know in medicine generally. Uh, it's in some positions, but generally when you arrive to like, I was a chief of trauma at NYU and then I was a chief of trauma at Columbia University and, uh, I was, uh, the surgeon for the United States Secret Service. Um, I've held some, pretty good positions in my lifetime and, and done some amazing things that we could never even talk about. Um, but I think they're based on merit. I don't think it's based on who you know in medicine. But how do you get to that level? Is it just they look at your resume? Oh, you you have 50 saves. You're our guy. Um, I, I think you, you get a reputation. Uh, it's a small community. 
of trauma surgeons and um, the, the community is small. Just like, you, you know, you can tell working with a cop for two seconds if they know what they're doing, right? Yeah, exactly. True. Very, very, very true. It takes true. two minutes to figure that out. Yeah, but so like you're always evolving and everything. And one of the things I actually wanted to talk to you about, so they're doing some amazing things with robotic surgeries and yeah. stuff. But again, it takes that humanity out. A robotic, a, a robot might go in there with that woman who, who coded and you delivered the baby and got the baby back. That robot may have quit because it read all the metrics that says that this. So is that, let me the put time. the myth about robotic surgery because I'm a robotic surgeon myself. So a couple about four or five years ago, you know, trauma has become very non-operative. We learned how to control bleeding and other things without cutting people open and doing surgery. So I was kind of getting not bored, but uh, a little frustrated that it wasn't operating as much. So four or five years ago, they trained me to be a robotic surgeon. And there's a lot of myths about robotic surgery, but basically I'm controlling it. I was going to say the, the surgeon controls the robot. So I'm sitting in a 3D high definition area across from the patient using my arms and legs. So now I have four arms that are going into the patient and I'm controlling every single movement. So when you hear robotic surgery, it's not true robotic surgery. It's just uh, assisted. It's you're not, you're not really hands-on. Uh, yeah, exactly. Well, you're not hands-on. Physically hands-on. You're able to do, you're able to move your hands or the robot hand in certain directions that the human body would never be able to turn around. I could be suturing up and I could flip my screen so that I'm suturing down. Um, I can work in a hole that I would never be able to suture in with my hands. It's just really, really amazing. That's cool. Yeah. And now with artificial intelligence coming into medicine, it's a, it's a really exciting time. I think it was, uh, I was just watching something. I think it was William McKinley. When he got shot, he died 10 days afterwards. And the reason he died is because some of the bullet fragment was still in there and it was in a spot where they couldn't get to. But it sounds like that robotic surgery could have done something. Uh, the bullets are not the problem. Uh, bullets tend not to get, uh, infected. Um, it's the, it's, it's the wounds. So basically when you're shot, the heat from the bullet and the primer leaving the gun is not enough to sterilize it. And you've touched the bullet anyway. So then the bullet is going through your clothing, which is not clean and dragging it through the wound then the, the bullet typically either comes out through an exit wound or it gets lodged in muscle or bone or something like that. Those almost never get infected. We can leave those bullets there for years and they're not a problem. It's this clothing and the other stuff that's caught in the wound, uh, usually the entry site. Uh, but we really don't see many wound infections. We don't. So what probably happened in that case, it hit an organ or hit a piece of bowel and then there was leakage of bacteria. But most gun, I, you never see gunshot wounds that get infected. You really don't. So from your experience, somebody comes in with a gunshot wound and you can sort of look at it and you, you can pre-qualify it like, okay, this, this is going to be, it's going to be all right. So you can't, that's not necessarily true. I've seen people shot running in the ankle and the bullet goes right up their leg into their chest. So that's why when you come in, the first thing we do is take off all your clothes and look, lift up your armpits, look in your crotch. Because those those bullets travel in amazing directions depending on whatever resistance of the tissue that are going through. You should have sat on the Warren Commission. <laughs> <laughs> you could explain the magic. Exactly. Well, so from your experience, I don't know if you've ever looked at it. This is an interesting question. I'm, yeah. a, I'm a big fan of history, so I have to ask you this question. Oh, yeah. The magic bullet theory. Is that possible? 
So I, I think there were a couple of variables with the Kennedy assassination. One is that he was wearing that girdle that kept him erect, right? He had a yeah, lot of a terrible back, back from issues. From PG-109, yeah. And he had something, a, a buttress that basically kept him. So when the first time he was shot, he probably would have just fell, fell over. Or if he had heard a gunshot, when he probably could have even fallen over earlier. So that was one issue with it. Um you know, out of all the things I've watched, nobody has ever brought that up. They never bring up the girdle thing. No. Yeah. Never. And I knew he wore one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think that was one of the major issues. I think he would have fallen down after the first shot. I used to know somebody who was on PT-109, who was on it with John really? Kennedy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, he was a really old man when I knew him, but... Um, and, you know, now, like, that Secret Service agent who was on the assignment is coming out saying, you know, it wasn't one shooter. Oh yeah, I mean that's been going. Guy. That's been yeah. going back in, back and forth. But oh, now the, you have somebody who was on the detail saying something. That's um, well, I saw that movie with Clint Eastwood. Wasn't he there? No. Yeah. That <laughs> so that that bullet traveled, and it's it's interesting what bullets will do because they'll, they'll re- yeah. they really will do magical things. I've I've seen it firsthand too. But that bullet went up, down, up, down, and then it landed. But in that's Connelly's. when it hits something, yeah. you know? When you, you see a full metal jacket uh, bullet will go through someone, turn 180 degrees and come out backwards. I mean, they'll hit off bone and change trajectory. But midair, generally, most high-velocity bullets go in a straight line. You so know? You're, I've you're, been to autopsies before of, of someone that was shot. And they take that, they stick something in them and trace the bullet. Yeah. yeah. That's amazing. That is amazing. It all comes How, down to velocity with bullets. It's it's that simple. Low velocity bullet leaves a cavitation two to three times the, the diameter of the bullet. When you get a high velocity over like 2,000 feet per second, you're talking 10 times the diameter of the bullet. So that's why even though it's the size of your pen, the bullet, you're like, how the hell can that kill someone or cause so much damage? Faster than the human eye can see for that millisecond, it's being stretched out 10 times the diameter of the bullet. Yeah. If you've ever seen a high velocity round go into the ballistics gel. Like the jelly. Yeah. 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 And you just watch it. Just that's what you're. That, that's what you're not appreciating because the human eye won't see it. Yeah. That's, pre- that's pretty interesting. So you, you're not only an expert in repairing, but you're probably pretty well versed in the damage that most bullets can do. Like, yeah, oh yeah, that was a, that was a nine millimeter. That was 45. That was, I've seen it all. Two, two, three. Yeah. Yeah. We love taking them out and then just like, we take them out of patience. Only when they're, oh, if they're floating around is the only time we take them out. If they're lodged in something, we leave them because we're going to cause more damage going after it. So I love taking it out and hitting it in the pan. You hear that ding and everybody starts laughing in the room. <clears throat> well, so getting back to the Kennedy assassination, you know, the bullet was on a stretcher with them. The, yeah, per, yeah. the, per, the, the perfect bullet. And I used to think it was total, I'm like, because I knew enough about shooting, I've been shooting a gun forever. And I was like, there's no way that's, but that same guy I was telling you about that was shot. So we're working on him behind the counter. And I look over and sure as shit, there was a bullet sitting right there. Get out. I'm not kidding. I don't think I've ever seen that. There was a bullet and I take a cup and I put it right over the bullet, right? to, To preserve the scene while I'm working on the guy. Right next to him, I go, hey, I'm working on it with, hey, Sarge, here's the bullet right here. He goes, no. Sure enough, there was. That's extremely rare. Yeah. Yeah. It was. Did you think of Kennedy when you saw that? Yeah, I said, (laughs) I did. So after, after everything was cleared and you're sort of, you're sort of decompressing everything that just went on, you go, oh my God. That could happen. That could happen. <laughs> so now I'm now a little gonna go watch uh, yeah, the movie now I'm start again. thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, I, I am a, I, I, I'm a bearer of witness to a magic bullet just coming okay. out the other side. All right. So do you have any, I know you have a lot of other interests and stuff. I'm sure trauma is a, is a big portion of your life, but yeah. it, it can't be all of it because if you're immersed in that 100%, you're going to burn out. 
how do you how do you keep from burning out? I love traveling. Uh, I was just in Italy this week and then Japan for two, three weeks before that. So whenever I have time off, I love to travel with my wife and my kids. Um, That's amazing that you would come into the Suffering Podcast. I was in Italy a couple of days ago. Yeah, my, st- my son was smart enough to study abroad this semester, so I went to visit him. Um, so I love to travel. I love to see the world. I love to see how people, other people do things. So I'll go visit another doctor in another country. And, you know, it's amazing how different people do different things based on what they have. You know, if they don't have a cat, like you, you get shot in South America, you don't have a CAT scan. So to watch these doctors figure out things that we are so used to just getting a CAT scan and getting a three-dimensional image of is kind of, kind of great. Now you've gone to other countries and sat in on yeah. Trauma surgeries. And- so usually they end up coming to me. Other countries yeah. come to visit me and figure out how I mm-hmm. do it. But I love going to their countries as well because you never know when you're going to be in a situation where you don't have something. You know? Well, it's sort of it's sort of like the I guess old school method of doing things. Yeah. You know, you you it's 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 great to put on these clothes, these nice clothes that we have, but to watch a piece of clothing actually get made in an older format is is pretty yeah. interesting to do. So you get that opportunity to do that in those other countries. Maybe exactly. they don't have the technology. That's right. And you, I'm sure you learn as much from them. Oh, as, I do. Yeah. Yeah. Because some of these people, they're, they're, they're amazing people out there. Well, like I said, they're, they're doing it bare minimum. Right. You know, they, they don't have the, you know, the, the MRIs and all that stuff. So, I mean, they, they got to be brilliant. That's what I appreciate yeah. about it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So aside from traveling and you see so much trauma in your life, how do you deal with it? How do you deal with it? Because you, like we were talking about earlier, you do absorb a lot of this hurt. Not not the physical pain, it's more the emotional pain in the family. Yeah. How do you deal with it? How do you decompress? Uh, uh, like I was saying before, I think there's a little bit of a wall up. I, I, I do. Um, we know how to shut it off. We like. I don't take it home. I, I really try not to take it home. There's certain days where you just see something horrible. And you, like I said, you don't sleep at night and you think about it and what can I have done differently? Uh, but there most days I think you just have to, when you leave that hospital, you leave it there. What well, do you do? You, uh, you, you're in shape. I'm sure you work out. You, you, physical fitness, does that have any, any play in it? Yeah. I, I, uh, as much as I can, my schedule, I love to work out. Um, not a big runner. I wish I ran, but uh, I, I do like to work out. I love to play the piano as well. I played the piano all my life. Uh, so music is really good for me. I think also having a support staff at home is, is important. Yeah. You know, when they know, they know when you've had a bad day and they know not to start prying, you know? Yeah. Because that's where the similarities lie between what we did and what you do yeah. is that support structure at home. You just said that, you know, you were supposed to spend time with your family, but you were in the ER until 12, 12 o'clock at night. So you have to have a really supportive system at home. Yeah. I mean, I, I know my, my, even with this stuff. So this, this show takes up a lot of time. I'm always like, really? Yeah. You're going to do this. Can we just watch a movie or something? I'm like, no, I got to get this stuff edited. I mean, family, our families do get it and they do support it, but they also don't get a lot of what we do. You have to admit that whether you're a veteran law enforcement in the healthcare field, there's certain things that we see that we, you can't share that you can't talk about and you can't relay. Especially with you with HIPAA laws and all that. Yeah. I mean, it's not even the, the, the legality of it. It's, you can't even express some of the things you've seen, you know? How, how does your, how does your wife, is, is she just this odd, scary, understanding So my person? wife doesn't like to hear about these stories, but my kids do. <laughs> so my kids, uh, 
uh, they'll never go skydiving. They'll never ride a motorcycle. They'll never do things like this because I basically scared the hell out of them their entire lives. <laughs> you want to come talk to my son? <laughs> I'd be happy to. Because he hears stories. Like if I'm around friends or something, I rode motorcycles forever. And I was that idiot riding a wheelie on the parkway. Mm. But he hears stories about this and thinks, oh, it's cool. I want to, you know, I built my first motorcycle. And he's like, oh, can I build a motorcycle too? And I'm like, yeah, sure, when you're older. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and I just keep pushing it off. Well, he's getting older now yeah. and he's going to he's gonna come at that. I'm going to tell him next time. I'm like, yeah, come talk to Dr. Miggs. And yeah. We'll, we'll hey, yeah, talk just like him. even like I can't tell you how many people and, and you don't see this on the news. But like when I was a uh, trauma surgeon in New York City at NYU, so many people on their cell phones in the subway that fall into the subway and lose an yeah, arm or a you leg. You see it all the time. All oh. the time. So I've heard the, the worst stories about the people at the platform that get stuck between the train and they twist and they're still alive and they're mm -hmm. fine. Yeah. And they tell their family come because once they move that train, they're untwist and everything. I had falls. one guy who tried to commit out. suicide who laid across a set of tracks and one train took off his arms, the other one took off his legs and he survived. Oh. So imagine oh. being the rest of your life just no arms, no legs. And he was, he was like 18 years old. You, you know, something, a, a traumatic incident like that where you try and you fail, but you, yeah. you get some damage. If you look at it a certain way, it's actually a blessing. Cause I'll bet you that kid never tried that again. <laughs> yeah. oh, he, he can't, can't. Yeah. <laughs> he can't even feed himself. Yeah. He can't do anything for, but himself. he's alive. Yeah. So that's one of the things that has impressed me the most about being a doctor and especially a trauma surgeon is the will to survive. So I've had people who have been like an explosion, arms blown off, their vision is gone, they can't see. And the first couple of days after they'll say, doc, I don't want to live like this. Uh, you know, something, you know, they lost their junk down there or whatever. I don't want to live. A hundred percent, not even 99.9%, a hundred percent by a week out, everyone wants to live. I've never had one trauma patient in my life one month, two months, three months later saying, why didn't you let me die? I wanted to die. There's that great line in Full Metal Jacket that he says, the dead only know one thing. It is better to be alive. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, as, as silly as the movie was too, Forrest Gump, Lieutenant Dan said to Forrest Gump, you know, why did you save my life? But you have he's in a wheelchair now and he's like, you know, what yeah. kind of life is this? At first he said that, right? Yeah. But then, yeah. Yeah. But then he, he exactly. comes around. And he came around. They always come around. Yeah. Because there's, there's beautiful things in life. And if you can just hang on a little bit more, hang on, pain ends. What's the alternative? There's none. Yeah. I don't know. I like. I'm going to take the devil I know, which is life. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because I don't know the other way. Yeah. Not yet anyway. I'm sure it's coming for all of us. Well, I got a lot of fire under my feet. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Has there ever, ever been like one of the people that you, you operate on, like one of these crazy surgeries, have they, ever they come back? To see you, you know, to like yeah. come back and meet you after it. And like, it was like a thank you type thing. Yeah. I've, I've had, uh, one of them was, uh, this woman who, um, was mowing the lawn. I guess this guy had his woman, his wife mowing the lawn and she must have. a man makes I his know. wife. Come so on. We're starting a, off a with smart, a smart man. <laughs> 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 so she's cutting the lawn and she like cuts her leg a little bit. Um, and she was pregnant at the time, like a couple of weeks pregnant and she cut her leg, but she developed this massive infection from the blade hitting her leg and went into septic shock and was intubated in the ICU for weeks. And I ended up saving her life. Um, after several surgeries, what did you hear the way doc just said that he goes, 
I ended up saving her life. Um, you know, it's no, it's 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 a Tuesday. That's all it is. Then the husband was mad at her. Fuck, fuck, what'd you do? But I, I love when patients, like even years after, like she was pregnant at the time, and on the operating room table, she aborted that fetus that was ten weeks on one of my operations with her. And I remember like taking out the baby that was like ten weeks old, and I was like, oh shit! But at least she was alive. And I, and what was nice is like two to three years later, after she eventually made it home after months in the hospital, she uh, sent a picture of her new baby and, you know, thanked me for being there. That's cool. That makes it worthwhile. That's what I said. Like if, if you have a CPR safe, you know, we had a CPR safe. The lady was 43 years old, you know, and when she, we saved her, when she got out of the hospital, we all went to go see her. And she was to this day, whenever I see her, she says, this is the guy that saved my life. Yeah. It's a good feeling. It's a great feeling. Yeah. So our good friend, Dr. Eugene Stefanelli, said a quote that is stuck in my head now. Uh, it's a quote by Voltaire. Mm-hmm. It says, to restore a human being back to health is as noble as to create. And that sounds like what you're doing right now. It's got to be an enormous sense of satisfaction. You know, I I know you do things. You are you seem like a giving person. You like doing the, this stuff. You like bringing life back. But at some level... We all have a little bit of selfishness in us. Yeah. And at some level, you do it because of the feeling you got. It's the same reason somebody will put a needle in their arm or put something up their nose or take a drink. It's the same feeling. It's it's a it's a personal satisfaction. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's it's our drug. Yeah. It, yeah. It really is. And uh, I hope you do it for many, many years to come. Especially if you ever see this face looking up, just, <laughs> you know, let it go. Yeah. I- I want to be operating until I can't operate anymore. Put it that way. Well, you, I, I'm. I, you don't look that old, so I'm sure you got plenty of plenty <laughs> of time left. It's either you're taking really good care of yourself, or or uh, you got some sort of magic surgical drugs. Um, yeah. See. Yeah. Oldest guy in the room again. <laughs> I plan it that way. You got any plugs you want to throw out? We do. We work with a, a federal law enforcement agency that uh, we support. It's called the Mobile Trauma Unit. Um, my friend Mark out there that I've known for 20 years. Um, basically we take care of law enforcement, whether it's federal or local, we provide training, uh, been around 22 years now, uh, doing this volunteer support. Uh, and in our heyday, we were doing incredible things for the federal government that you could probably write books about that affected world politics. Uh, but at this point now, uh, we do a lot of training, uh, with the mobile trauma unit and, um, Still do some missions, but done very good things. And you could read more about it on the website. Yeah, I think they needed a, new, a real good trauma surgeon in uh, Tulum. <laughs> in, in Tulum. 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 <laughs> Tulum. Well, can you give the website out again? Uh, it's mobiletraumaunit.org. Mobiletraumaunit.org. Mobile we'll put a little lower yeah. third there. So, Doc, we're, we are coming to the end of this thing. And um, I've, I, you have seen things that can are the stuff of nightmares. You're like Final Destination stuff. I know you have. People's and family's worst moments. Worst, yeah. yeah. When you see me, it's your worst day. Oh, yeah. Without a doubt. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, no. yeah, rephrase that, please. Yes. Yeah. Cut, when, and, you're, when your patients see Andrew, you. cut that one. Let's do it. No. Uh, <laughs> That's going to be a, when you see me, it's your worst day. <laughs> so anytime Doc comes in your door, it's like, oh. Oh, oh. yeah. Don't have him over for dinner or anything. Yeah. You know? But if you've spent this entire time as a trauma surgeon for 30 years, okay, mm-hmm. you've learned a thing or two. And whatever you've learned is ultra valuable because you still have a love for it. What is 
this suffering of being a trauma surgeon taught you? I think if you can spare someone from having the worst day of their lives, that's, that's a gift. It really is. Uh, if you can spare a family losing their loved one, there's nothing better than, than that. We've all lost somebody in this room or uh, we know someone who's lost somebody and it's just the, the, the finality of it's just horrible and, and you can't bring it back. So I'm the person at that moment that if I do my job right is bringing you back and bringing you back to your family. I'm certainly glad there's people in the world like you. You know, I was going to say, doc, thanks for all you do, but mainly thanks for caring. And I think that's why you're such a good doctor because you care. You You know, I like, I've had some health issues in my life. As you get older, you have some health issues. And I think that's what made me the best doctor is, is being on a gurney in, in, you know, one of those gowns that with your ass hanging out. (laughs) And that makes you a better doctor. Too. There was a, there was a movie years ago with William Hurt called the doctor. And he, he gets, so he was this, this doctor who put this wall up and was so callous by whatever he see. He was probably in his mid fifties, early sixties and he gets throat cancer. And all of a sudden he has to become the patient and mm-hmm. he looks at things from a different angle and he beats it, but it totally transforms yeah. the way that he lives his life. Yep. Yeah. So looking at things from both sides is always. Exactly. Right. Gives you a different pr- perspective. Yep. Doc, thank you so much for. My pleasure, guys. For giving us some time. I know your your time is extraordinarily valuable, but I do appreciate you. Glad to be here. Thank you. Thank pleasure you. meeting you. And that's going to do it for this episode of the Suffering Podcast, the suffering of a trauma sur- surgeon. And let's think about all the stuff that we learned. Don't ever lose your humanity. Don't say, don't let me die. A career often finds you. To restore a person to health is as noble as to create. But most importantly, hope can save you. And that's going to do it for this episode. Don't forget to go to popple.com for a digital business card. Put in the code TSP20 for a 20% discount. Follow us on all social media. That's Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, LinkedIn, Twitter. Only fans. <laughs> follow Mike at Mike underscore Felice. Follow me at Real Kevin Donaldson. And of course, follow the Suffering Podcast. I just want to give a big shout out to my brother, Jimmy Flanagan, who just recently passed. We love you, Jimmy, and you're always going to be in our heart. We'll see you on the next episode.